Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by interim pastor Derek Gecki. He is preaching from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Today, uh, we're starting a new series. I kind of wish it was January 1st, but what can I do about the calendar? It's the end of the year, but we're starting a new series, so let's just nudge it over to 2024, all right? We'll start fresh. Um, We're starting a new series called The Disciples Toolbox, where we're going to be focusing on the spiritual disciplines that are commonly recognized in the Christian faith as things that we should practice on a regular basis. Uh, We might consider these practices, the proper techniques for a healthy spiritual body. Um, So like if you're taking care of your physical body or to some degree your mental health, what do you do? Well, you you eat the right food, you get a good exercise, and you get enough sleep. Those are typically the things we go to. Speaking of sleep, today's message is how to rest. Now, originally, uh, when Michael and I were figuring out the pattern here. We considered saving this one for the end. That seemed to make the most thematic sense. We'll give you guys all the stuff you're supposed to do, and then we'll show you how to rest afterwards. It seemed appropriate to do it after you put in the work. But the more we looked into it, the more we came to believe that knowing how to rest is paramount if you want to do the other disciplines well. And I'd like to guess that most of us... um, at least from my understanding, if you were asked to do more stuff, uh, you're probably going to be a little overwhelmed off the bat. So let's let's not do that today. Instead, today we're going to look at our problem with rest, why we're so restless, and the rest that God offers. So we're going to look at our problem with rest, why we're so restless, and the rest that God offers. Would you please bow your heads with me as we pray for this message? Father, as we go into a new year and we gather up all our resolutions and look at the things we're going to do to make our lives better, uh, please help us remember what you have spoken, what you have said, what you've taught about what we do and what it means to rest in you. Please give us wisdom and please help us hear your voice today. Let these words be yours, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So what do we mean by the concept of rest? What does that look like? I think all of us have a variety of ideas of what rest means. I'd like to think we all agree sleep is rest. I would think if you have bad sleep, then you didn't get your rest. Um, But rest could also be social time, hanging out with friends, could be reading a good book, could be watching movies, playing video games, a little too late, some of you guys. Oh, no. It's okay. Um, It could be playing sports. It could be baking. I've met some people for whom baking is very relaxing. Praise God that you exist, because I don't know how, how you do it. Now, not everything I just cited probably sounds restful to everyone, Again, for some, going on a 10-mile hike in the mountains just sounds like heaven. For others, having a a big watch party on a Saturday for the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, extended edition, of course, um, that's restful. And I would venture that for some of you, if I mentioned the hike, 
you said, oh, that sounds exhausting, and watching Lord of the Rings also sounds exhausting. So rest can mean very different things to all of us. The common denominator, I think we could all agree on, is that we're recharging. We're getting our energy back. Now, what are we recharging from? Work, right? We're recharging from our work. School work, housework, menial work, manual work, social work, and by that I mean being social. Introverts, I see you. I am one of you. Office work, business work, none of business work. Whatever work means for you, we all recognize the need to take a break. Is it fair to say, then, if we view rest as this, these nice things we like to do that we are trying to get away from work for a moment, is it fair to say that we primarily view rest, again, whatever that looks like to us, as a reward for a job well done? I have done job X, so now it's time to enjoy leisure activity Y. There's, now, there's plenty of biblical support for the idea that people are rewarded for hard work, and bad things happen to those who don't do it. Uh, Proverbs is a good source for some of these, you know, uh, bumper sticker verses. Uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 11 reads, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Somehow Solomon knew about NFTs long before the rest of us. Um, Proverbs 14.23 reads, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And then in the New Testament it gets reiterated, a bit more spiritual this time, Colossians 3.23-24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now notice, however, that all these things are being listed as rewards, but none of these are rest. The rewards being called out here, bread, profit, inheritance. That's not rest. Those are things or actual rewards. For many of us, if not all, I believe in our culture, especially, retirement is the big reward at the end of a life's hard work. So a lot of people I've grown up with and that I've met, retirement, ah, once I retire, oh, oh, the things I'll do. Now that I've finally put in my time, I can do what I really want to do. I can finally travel. I can paint. I can write that great American novel. I can garden all day long. Retirement is a big, it's kind of part of the American dream at this point. You know, you put in a few decades of work, and then you get like 20, if you're lucky, 30 years of just me time. In the meantime, we accept little retirements as compensation for each stretch of work we do. Evenings are our reward for the workday. Weekends are our reward for working the week. And vacation time is our reward for every few months or the year if you save up your time. What this does, however, I think, what I propose, is that this paints work as a necessary evil, something we have to do so we can eventually do what we want to do. Even if you enjoy your work, and I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, like any person from a guidance counselor perspective always told me, do what you love. You know, the money will 
do whatever, but do what you love, and then work won't be such a problem. But I'd wager, even if you enjoy what you do as a job, there's plenty of restful activities you'd enjoy more, right? <laughs> like, even if you love your job, at the end of the day, there's a sense of relief that you don't have to keep going. On the flip side, no matter how long or hard or overwhelming our work becomes, we keep holding out for that dangling carrot of someday I'll get to rest. It's tempting for religious people, and I use that generically, it can, it can apply to us as Christians, it can apply to people from any religion. It's tempting to translate this concept into our spiritual walks. Heaven, or afterlife, is our big retirement reward. A reward for a life well lived, for staying obedient, going to church every Sunday, reading our Bible, doing some community service now and then. We earned it. We got it. Even in our passage today, as you heard it read, I think it might have been tempting to hear it or read it, if you want to go back over it, and see all this talk about God's rest as a final reward. And we'll get to that in a bit. But doesn't that mean that we're treating our spiritual disciplines as things we have to do to earn God's approval? Even if we believe on a logical level or an emotional level that we are saved through grace by Christ alone, and that's, that's the mantra of our church, and we, we do believe it, but even if we believe it on a logical level, do we, in our hearts, still consider these disciplines as necessary evils? Things we have to do, so someday we'll get to do what we want to do. But there's more to this problem. It's not just our perception of rest as a reward that we have to work for. If the goal of our work is to earn enough money, vacation time, whatever you want to call it, so that we can rest, why are we all working so much when we have rest available? Why are we so restless? Now, on the surface, we seem to recognize the desire for rest, if not the need, amongst ourselves. Yet our culture, especially in America, we're obsessed with work. Now, of course, to some degree, this is tied into our economy. You know, sometimes you, you do have to work long hours, sometimes multiple jobs to make ends meet. And that's a different problem. But it's not just economic necessity that I think we're struggling with. In a article written in July of this year on the website, The Post and Courier, uh, Solomon D. Stevens wrote an article about this, and here's a reading from that. Americans just can't catch a break, or rather, they aren't taking a break. More than half of Americans are not using their vacation time, or if they do, they keep working while on vacation. I was once one of these people. My employer offered me two weeks of vacation every year, but I didn't take the time off. I took a few Fridays off in the summer, and that was it. Why didn't I take a real vacation? I was worried that things would happen while I was away that I could not control. And to be honest, I just felt wrong about being out of touch. Was this arrogance? Did I think I was irreplaceable? Perhaps. 
I might have been that foolish. But it was also conveyed to me by my employer that every day was so significant that I would be putting the whole enterprise at risk by being away. If I really cared about the job, I would always be there. The good employees were always on the job. It was wrong to demand so much of employees, but I have to take responsibility for my own actions. The fact is, I bought into it. What Stevens is saying here is he didn't forego his vacation, his rest, out of a love of work, but rather a fear of what would happen if he rested. And with fear comes an inherent lack of trust. For his co-workers, he lacked trust that they could do the job. He feared his company could crumble without him. For his boss, he feared intent. He feared that he might lose his job if he didn't constantly prove how dedicated he was. And for himself, there was an inherent lack of trust, a fear that he was not a good employee. I think we can understand pretty practically the fears of, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about what other people might do if I'm not there. Uh, I fear what my boss might actually be thinking about what the future of my job will look like. But what's, what is that last one, the fear of being a good employee, or rather the fear of not being a good employee? Is that about job security, or is there something else going on? Hopefully, by the way I ask that, you know I'm intending to say there's something else going on. We just got out of the holiday season. I don't know how many of you have favorite holiday movies. Um, the Grinch is my mom's all-time favorite. Uh, my cousins love A Christmas Story, which I don't understand. Do <laughs> you know the TNT 24 hours? They'll play A Christmas Story every year. My cousins will have it on the whole day. Mm. But everyone, to, to each their own. Everyone has a favorite, I think, unless you hate Christmas movies. I've heard of people that do that, too, and that's fine. Um, but for my wife and I, there was a recent one that was released last year on Apple+, Plus, a comedy musical starring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds called Spirited. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Um, raise of hands. Okay, so not everybody. All right. Uh, so just to give you a quick take, Spirited is a twist on the classic story of the Christmas Carol, the Ebenezer Scrooge, the three ghosts, that thing. Will Ferrell plays the ghost of Christmas past. And very early on, in like the first 10 minutes or so, we learn that he's up for retirement. It's time for him to take a break. And the, the way they phrase retirement in the movie is that the ghosts get to go back to Earth and be human again, but at the age that they died at, it's a very weird concept. Like he'll go back to Earth, but he's like 55 and gets to live until he dies again. It's very strange, but okay, we'll give him the conceit. But even though he's up for retirement, it's also clear that he's driven to keep working by this intense need to make a difference. And you get the sense he can't bear to rest until he's done something. And just to clarify in this movie, the what, it's, what they're saying is the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, they do the Scrooge thing every year to a different person, and they're keeping track of how many bad people they've made better. And anyway, that's So he's continually been doing this for years and years and years and years and years. Now, I have to make a point, and in order to do so, I have to provide a small spoiler for those who haven't seen it. I apologize. Uh, I think they telegraph it pretty strong, so I don't think it's that big of a deal. But turns out Will Ferrell isn't just any ghost. He is Scrooge. 
he took over the role after he died. He, he became the Ghost of Christmas Present. And he's been haunted for over 150 years by all the bad and evil he committed while he was alive. All this time, he's been trying to make up for his sins through his work. He's been struggling with the idea that he needs to prove he's a good person, to prove that his existence is justified. I believe this speaks to the heart of the problem we have in our relationship with work and rest. We aren't just working to earn a break. Sometimes we are. Sometimes that keeps us going through the day. But there's an underlying current, an underlying incentive for work, where we're trying to prove that, we're, that we matter, that our existence is justified, that we're worth something. Whether we're believers or not, I would wager we all know, or at least sense, that there's something wrong with us. We don't always do things the way we wanted to. We don't always do the good we were hoping to do. And there's this sense we got to make up for it. For Christians, we understand that this reflects our sin, that we are not operating the way God designed us to be. But we almost always fall back on what we do to justify our existence and to make up for what we've done. I think we tend to apply this to everyone, not just ourselves. When you meet a stranger, you ask two questions. First one is, what's your name? Very nice, my name is blank. What's the second question? And what do you do? What, what do you do for a living? Or are you a student? How do you treat the person based on their answer? If they say, well, I'm a doctor. Oh, all right. Well, then, I have great respect for you. You are justified. If they have something on the low end of what we would consider a job, if they work retail, fast food, what's our response? Maybe not verbally, maybe not outside, but isn't the inside like, that's too bad. Maybe I can help. Maybe you don't say that out loud. But I, I would vouch that our instinct is, oh, hmm, maybe, maybe there's some, way or some level of improvement there. I, this, this applies to ourselves, too. I worked at Walmart for eight years, guys. It's a pretty demeaning job at times. You start to wonder, what am I doing? What good am I providing? How am I justifying being here? This is the mentality I believe we keep falling back into, but it's not biblical. It's not what God intended. Yes, we have verses supporting the value of hard work, but the Bible never associates that work with the value of the person. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, James tells us, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, a doctor or a lawyer perhaps, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, someone who flips burgers, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
this judgment applies to others, I would wager it applies to ourselves too. Do you look down on yourself because of your job? Do you think you're not worth it because of what you do to earn a living? Do you work more than you need to because that is in your heart? We just can't stop working because we never trust that what we've done is enough to justify ourselves. And it's true. We can't do enough. It doesn't matter how many hours you put in at your job. It doesn't matter how many hours you volunteer at church. You guys do not have to break yourselves serving the church to earn God's love or approval. Going back to Spirited, um, Scrooge's big breakthrough, what he finally comes to realize in a song called Unredeemable, um, he realizes that he can't earn his worth for himself. He needs someone else to find him worthy and to recognize that. What he sings is, am I forever unredeemable? Can I ever overcome all the wrongs I'm running from? Can my worst be left behind, and do I deserve to find there's a soul who could see any good in me? Or will I only ever be unredeemable? And this brings us to the rest that God offers. Now, going back to our passage, and yes, we're finally getting to it. Um, this particular section in Hebrews is talking about a specific people group at a specific time, the Israelites who followed Moses during the Exodus. The rest that's being talked about originally was referring to the promised land, a place God had promised to Abraham and his descendants that was flowing with milk and honey. Essentially, it was retirement in physical form, a land so blessed with resources that they really wouldn't have to worry much about anything. They could harvest, they could farm, they could garden, everything would be provided, they didn't have to save up anymore. Now it's important to note that God had promised this land to them, and they knew it was promised to them as they wandered through the desert. It was why God brought them out of Egypt in the first place. Like he took them out of slavery to get them to the promised land. This was the goal. They'd been wandering actually a relatively short time before they got there. And yet despite Knowing this promise and seeing God perform miracle after miracle in the wilderness, wiping out Egypt's army on his own. Remember the story of the Red Sea? Empowering them to defeat those who attacked them on the road. Providing them with food every day. You guys saw the snow outside? That was their food supply with manna and quail every day. Food, food, food. Despite all that, they kept doubting that God actually loved them. They kept doubting his intentions. And when they saw that the land that they were supposed to inhabit, this promised land, was actually already populated by what's vaguely referred to as giants, bare minimum people that didn't want them to move in, all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, refused to trust God would give it to them. They were still working under the belief that their salvation, acquiring the promised land, was all up to them. The, and yeah, the workload they were looking at, yeah, it was impossible. 
That was the point. They weren't supposed to do it on their own. God had promised it. God would secure it for them. They just had to trust that he was going to do that. But by clinging to this belief that it was all up to them, they decided that they'd be better off going back to Egypt and becoming slaves again. In Numbers, we see their reaction right after this exchange happens. Numbers 14, verses 3 through 4. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They chose slavery. Work with no rest over trusting God. Is that where our hearts might be today? Are we trusting our work to prove ourselves? This blatant refusal to believe God's promises or his love for them, to rest in those things, meant that he had nothing left to give them. As, a, as our passage read today, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Going back to the idea of rest as a reward for good work. But again, that's not actually an accurate representation of rest in the Bible. God wove rest into the cycle of creation. Again, this is before the fall. This is before sin. This was like how it was just, this was the design. He even set an example by resting himself. Genesis 2.2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Two, th two points here. One, this means God can't be rewarding himself because he doesn't need anything. A reward is something you receive that you don't have. If God has everything, rest is nothing he didn't already have. So it can't be a reward. It also can't be because he got tired, because he's an infinite being. He doesn't have fatigue toxins to worry about. So it's, it's not a need, and it's not a reward for him. God is making a point that he is not above resting. So what makes us think we are? We've proven so stubborn about not wanting to rest, not taking a break, that he had to command us to rest. We reflected on it in the catechism today. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Yes, it talks about worshiping God, but there's also many verses that, that back up the idea it was built for man so you all would just stop working. Stop trying to justify yourselves. Again, you don't need to be commanded to accept a reward, right? Someone's handing you a reward. They don't have to be like, take it. Some of us might be stubborn enough to <laughs> refuse a reward. Oh, no, I, I'm too proud. But if rest is woven into creation, it's not a reward. It's what God built us for. And have you ever noticed in the order of creation, God creates us, mankind, on day six. 
and I'm not going to get into a whole argument about what the days of creation in Genesis meant as far as timeline, but as far as order, we were created day six. Day seven was the day of rest, which means for God, his works were done and he rested. For us, the day of rest was day one. We started in rest. We were built, we were not built to work so that we could earn our rest. We were built in rest, and from there, we could find the strength to do our work. God did all the work for us so that we could rest. And that leads us into a deeper rest than just the physical, as important as that is. Remember, the real reason we're so restless is because we're trying to justify ourselves. But that was never God's intention either. Like Scrooge and Spirited, or maybe you right now in your job or your church volunteer work or your relationships or what have you, we can never do enough to prove we're worth anything. We need someone from the outside to give that to us. And it's not just some official stamp of approval that we need. It's not a pat on the back from your boss. It's not your coworkers saying you did a good job, although that is important. We need the deepest level of approval possible. And that's love. Unconditional love. The love that looks into your soul and sees all the black, all the darkness, all the stuff you're struggling with and still says, I love you. In Jesus Christ, God came to provide a true, pure, ultimate love for everyone. All the work that we feel we have to do to earn our place in the world, that was done for us on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant there's nothing else we need to do to restore the relationship with God that our sin destroyed. It's already done. We just need to trust that it's done. We need to rest in the fact that it's done. If you can accept that, if you can accept that love, let it seep in and melt your heart and learn to rest from your own works by trusting in his, then the burdens will start to fall away. Yes, you'll have rough days. Works will have, it will, work will still have its ups and downs. You might have a rough job. You might have a job that feels meaningless. But, you can rest in what God has done and promised you. You'll be able to come to that work from a place of ultimate rest rather than a place of ultimate need. Constantly falling back on him to trust that he will take care of you no matter what and that you are forever precious in his sight. And once you're there, all these spiritual disciplines that we're going to be looking at over the next few months, and yes, we're going to be discussing Bible reading, prayer, how to serve, how to give. We will be touching on those. But if you learn to accept this rest, these disciplines will not be chores. They'll be ways to connect with him and to rest even deeper into his arms. As he told us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let us pray. 
Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.